evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 201. Uh, and tonight we are going to begin the process of preparing to leave Rivendell. We're probably not going to be in Rivendell for more than like another month or so at this rate. Uh, <laughs> that departure is imminent. <laughs> so here we so here we go. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Um, but before I start tonight, uh, uh, some announcements. Um, so, of course, I have an, an important announcement this week. Last Wednesday, so it's now this, you know, this announcement is now almost a week old, but, um, but I haven't talked to you guys about it yet, which is that uh, our fall fundraising campaign has launched uh, for the year. Um, always a fun time in the Signum calendar, our fall fundraising campaign, which launched last Wednesday night when uh, we started our Nature of Middle Earth quest um, uh, for the Mythgard Academy. And uh, that's it's always a lot of fun. Of course, my I always enjoy the fall fundraising campaign as I love the opportunity uh, to say thank you to all of you wonderful folks uh, who helped to make Signum possible. As I, I announced last Wednesday night, um, we set an all-time record last year uh, for uh, fundraising for Signum. We raised over eighty-eight thousand uh, dollars for our annual fund, which is just stupendous, like twenty thousand more uh, than the year before. It was uh, it was like a 33 percent increase. Um, uh, over the previous year. It was uh, spectacular. Um, and uh, so our target for this year, our target is 100000 uh, for the annual fund for this year. Um, and we already are over uh, almost to 57000 uh, for this year so far. Um, uh, so we're, on a, we're, uh, we're uh, off to a really great start uh, for our annual fund. So I did just, of course, want to ask if you uh, haven't made a donation to Signum uh, this year uh, and, you know, for this fiscal year, which starts in August and goes through next July, um, that you would consider uh, making a donation. Uh, the uh, money that you've been able to give has made a huge impact uh, on Signum. Um, I was, again, I was sharing on Wednesday night about how we've been able to triple uh, the uh, the payroll at Signum University for our, um, you know, our non-faculty staff. Um, it's been a, a huge time of growth for us at Signum, and the uh, the wonderful donation year we had last year really uh, really played into that very significantly. So, um, you know, when you uh, when you give money to Signum, almost all of your money goes to like support the work of the wonderful people who make things possible. We uh, we pay for very little else uh, other than uh, you know we pay the. Uh, Fees and uh, fees and taxes and things that we have to pay, and then we pay for a few software licenses and people. That's pretty much what we do. We put as much of it as we can uh, to people, and it's really uh, I, I, it's my favorite thing to spend money on. Now, here's the other thing I wanted to tell you before we leave the subject for now, and that is um, this year for the fall fundraising campaign, we're doing a special drawing. So I, I we do I do prize drawings every year, but we're doing it differently this year. So here's what's happening. In this uh, Falls fundraising campaign, and I forgot, I've got a slide about that. Um, in this year's Fall fundraising campaign, we are celebrating the breadth of our Signum programs. Um, and uh, so what, what I'm doing for the drawing this year is we have four programs uh, that are going to be, uh, you know, have some level of tuition. Though, of course, we try to keep our tuition as low as possible in every program. But, uh, but here's how it's going to work. So for uh, each week 
of the campaign. Um, I'm going to be uh, drawing uh, uh, drawing the name of one of the people who donated to Signum during the course of that, whose donation was processed during the course of that week. So that means if you have an uh, like a monthly donation set up, as many people do, um, then like whatever week that falls in, you'll you'll count for that week. I promise everyone who has a monthly donation will be counted uh, towards one of these. Though, of course, if you make an, an extra donation, you can, you know, double your chances. But um, anyway, so every week we're going to do a drawing from the list of uh, folks who have donated during the course of that week. And the winner is going to receive uh, you know, a, uh, a golden ticket, you know, a ticket that you can redeem for either one of our Anytime Audit uh, courses from our graduate, you know, from uh, dr- drawn from our graduate program um, for one for a month of our Signum Academy Clubs subscription for a uh, grade three through 12 person uh, that that that, you know, um, for a for one month of a Signum Path registration for our professional development program to develop personal communication skills, or for a module in our new space program, which is our Signum Portals for Adult Continuing Education. Um, And for more information about our space program, which we'll be launching soon uh, in December, uh, you should come to the uh, Webathon on the 16th of October, Saturday, October 16th, where I'm going to be explaining more um, about, um, I'm going to be doing our State of the University address, where I'll be explaining more about our space program and how that's going to work. Uh, it's going to be really cool. So, um, so that is, uh, that's what's going to be, so th- that's what's going to be happening. I'm going to be doing the drawing every week during the Mythgard Academy uh, session. So tomorrow night uh, at the beginning of our Nature of Middle-earth class, I'll do the drawing for the first week. So there's still time uh, to make a donation this week uh, and get in on this, uh, on this first drawing. So, um, so there we go. So yeah, <laughs> well, for y'all, I, it's not exactly just an excuse for me to say our space program, but um, it's just uh, it just rolls off the tongue, you know. I, it uh, it uh, it it really does. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, it's just pretty awesome. Um, okay, so that is. Uh, uh, that is what is happening. So again, just thanks to everybody who um, has been so generous in supporting Signum over the years. Um, we have very generous and very faithful donors, uh, and I am very, very grateful to all of you who can do that. Two last really quick items. One is Middlemoot is coming up, our regional moot in the Midwest. That's going to be located in Waterloo, Iowa on the 9th of October. Still time to sign up for that, either uh, for digital attendance or for on-site attendance uh, there in Iowa. Um, and uh, looking forward to that. Mike Drought is going to be speaking uh, at this event, so uh, you can come. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, language and philology and lots of the things that uh, that Tolkien loved best. So uh, come join us uh, for that conference out in Waterloo, Iowa, or join us online. Uh, we had New England moot. Uh, this past weekend, this past Saturday, uh, up here in New Hampshire, uh, and that was great fun, uh, and things worked really, really well. So uh, I am enjoying. Yes, uh, philology, the love of love of words, friend of words, is the theme of uh, of uh, Middlemoot here. Um, so anyway, 
uh, just wanted to make sure uh, that you guys knew about that. And finally, we have uh, uh, we have a, uh, a special on one of our Anytime Audits, uh, the Language Invention course taught by Andrew Higgins several years back. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that because that uh, promotion is ending on Thursday. So if you wanted to uh, get our language, uh, our Invented Languages uh, course, um, in which uh, uh, Dr. Higgins talks about, of course, Tolkien's Elvish languages, as well as some other uh, fantasy languages, uh, then you can uh, uh, you can get that. Just go to our uh, Signum University homepage and you should see that. Um, so there we are. Okay. Now, with all that said, let us jump back into the text here. So we have been discussing where the scouts went and what the scouts found there. And now we have Gandalf's response, Gandalf, the conclusion that Gandalf draws. Now, uh, this is a moment of transition. Um, if you kind of hang on a second, I, I need to I need to 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 let me, where did it go? Oh, hang on. Went too far. Here's where I want to go. The last slide that we did before. OK, here we go. All right. Um, so remember that. Notice the transition that we're doing, because it's an interesting kind of narrative moment. We don't do this sort of thing all that often uh, in the text. That is, we go from the narrator telling us what's been happening, right? In no reason, region had the messengers discovered any sign or tidings um, you know, of the Black Riders. No other trace was to be seen, and nowhere was their presence to be felt. It seemed that they had vanished from the north, okay? Um, but um, then that goes immediately into Gandalf's dialogue. Right? Eight out of the nine are accounted for at least, said Gandalf. Um, so we're not given any sense of time frame, any sense of location here. We don't know exactly to whom Gandalf is speaking, presumably um, to Frodo, right? But it's kind of interesting the way that this just segues straight into what Gandalf said to someone at some point. Um, having this uh, sub kind of a disjointed uh, piece of dialogue like this is sort of unusual, right? Um, that um, we we went from the narrator just kind of telling us about it to apparently the end of an actual conversation at some point in some time, but we're given very little information about that, which is... Um, which is interesting. Again, it's it's not unknown, but it's a little bit unusual. Uh, Drowsnake, that's an interesting observation. It is a little bit like um, uh, what happens in the Silmarillion sometimes, uh, where we uh, we kind of zoom in. Though usually there's some kind of uh, narrative transition, right, between like the um, describing things. Uh, like a historical, you know, uh, uh, annal, you know, from uh, from 10,000 feet to, you know, uh, zooming down in close to the ground and giving dialogue and stuff like that. Um, but um, yeah, but I agree, Matt, the list of possible listeners is relatively sh uh, short. Bilbo, Frodo or Sam are the three possible transcribers uh, of the conversation with Gandalf. And I would suspect um, uh, I would suspect that it's uh, it's Frodo. Um, yeah. Uh, Captain Mo, we'll get to there. We'll get there. That's going to be an interesting question. I uh, remember that question about the, uh, 
Yeah, but we'll wait till we get to Holland to talk about that one. But yeah, um, Drosnik, I doubt that Findigil, King's writer, is creeping about in the bushes here. Now, we know that he does add things after the fact, but I can't imagine it's this. Um, this seems like a relatively low uh, 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 percentage uh, shot of uh, getting Findigil's uh, intervention here. Um, but uh, Bjorning in Exile was wondering if... Um, you know, did Frodo or Sam need a segue to the time the Fellowship leaves? Yeah, I mean, what we see, if we just, like, peek ahead, right, um, The where we're going to go after this, we're going to get a narrative frame again, right? Elrond summoned the hobbits to him. Um, and so that's, we don't know how much time has passed in between the conversation that some combination of hobbits apparently was happening with Gandalf until their conversation with Elrond. But here, of course, we know much more clearly who's there, or at least a minimum of who's there, right? Elrond summoned the hobbits, meaning all five of them, I presume, uh, based on it just says the hobbits, right? Um, so, um, but again, we're not, we're not sort of there yet. So the, it is a kind of, so Gandalf's words in these two paragraphs, Bjorning, are a transition uh, between the narrator telling it's the whole like end time passes and the seasons passed by and the you know the 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 hunter's moon right and the star and red star in the south and you know, all that whole passage right um, that to describing the accounts um, or the journeys and findings or lack of findings um, of the scouts. Um, This is clearly the end of that passage and not the beginning of the next passage. Because, again, we get a clear transition for the beginning of the next passage. Elrond summoned the hobbits to him, right? So, you know, now uh, 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 the curtain rises on a very clear scene there, right? Um, so this is definitely the end of the previous scene. So the, the, the fact that the last bit was given directly into Gandalf's voice, but again, out of context, like what it, it doesn't matter, apparently, um, what the context of this conversation was like, we're not going to worry about what room they were sitting in or, you know, outside or what, you know, what was the setting? It doesn't matter exactly who was there. It doesn't matter exactly who is sitting on what, you know, with how many of their buttocks or whatever, like <laughs> the, the intricate discussion that we had before. None of that stuff apparently matters. Um, did earlier, doesn't now. What matters now is simply Gandalf is the one who is, um, uh, who is going to be um, uh, uh, giving the final word, essentially, um, the final encapsulation on um, the scouting reports and what they should do next. Um, okay, now let's get to Gandalf's actual words. Eight out of the nine are accounted for at least, said Gandalf. It is rash to be too sure, yet I think that we may hope now that the ringwraiths were scattered and have been obliged to return as best they could to their master in Mordor, empty and shapeless. If that is so, it will be some time before they can begin the hunt again. Of course, the enemy has other servants, but they will have to journey all the way to the borders of Rivendell before they can pick up our trail. And if we are careful, that will be hard to find. But we must delay no longer. Okay. Yes, we did hear about the cloaks and dead horses uh, last time. Um, absolutely. Uh, okay, so, all right, let's go back to that first paragraph first. Um, my, there are a couple, so 
a lot of what we see in that first paragraph just follows up on things that we've already just already discussed, right? Um, the the wafting of the ring wraiths, right? The wraiths wafting back to Mordor is something that we talked about last time. Um, but there are a, there are a couple phrases there, which I think give us a little bit, words or phrases, which give us a little bit more data uh, on some of the conclusions we were trying to draw before about the Ringwraith specifically. Uh, number one, empty. Empty. Shapeless, I was prepared for, right? Shapeless, I was prepared for. Um, uh, with the whole uncloaked thing that we've been discussing. Right. Um, that it's not just that they've lost like their disguise. Uh, you know, we talked about this before. They can't just like rob, a, you know, a, a, a laundry line somewhere and get, you know, new clothes to give themselves shape to their nothingness. They've been uncloaked. Not just it's not just that they've lost their physical cloaks. It is that they um, uh, they have lost that they, they were embodied, right? They had been made solid, sufficiently solid to wear cloaks and boots, apparently. Um, but, um, uh, but no longer, right? They have been, they're, they're now sent back shapeless. Shapeless, that just kind of adds to the concept that we were previously developing based on what we heard about them being uncloaked. That seems to fit perfectly well. Um, what we were concluding before. But the word empty now, that is really interesting. That's not, that does not merely go along with the kinds of conclusions that we were drawing before. Empty um, really does, um, really does suggest something different. Well, I'm not sure it's completely different, right? But if they're empty, that suggests that they had been filled previously. Um, we had talked about them having been cloaked. Not nah, again, not, nah, it's not about the literal cloaks, um, but that they had been, that they had been given a form, right? That they had been given the ability, essentially, without the cloaking, right? Which is done by Sauron, right? Without Sauron exerting his power over them, on their behalf, upon them, uh, however we want to uh, conceive of it. Um, without that, they would not even really be able to interact with the physical world, right? I mean, forget wearing boots and cloaks. They couldn't ride horses. They couldn't, uh, uh, they couldn't communicate. They couldn't speak to people, right? Because, um, I mean, you've got to be able to interact with the physical world just to make words, right? Um, uh, you know, especially in the dark, uh, the gaffer might not be able to make out very well what you look like under any circumstances, right? Um, as he's more than a bit blind, the gaffer. But, um, you know, in order for him to be able to hear the words that you're saying, you need to, um, you need to be able to interact with the air, right? Uh, and form words and sounds. Uh, so clearly they had, um, they had some, they had something going on. But this, this idea of emptiness, right? Um, I find it particularly evocative because they had been filled, right? It's the image of being cloaked or uncloaked that we were working with before invited me anyway to kind of picture it as um, like an encasement, like a uh, concealment almost, right? 
Um, but, um, I, but yeah, now um, Almaria, filled with their master's will, is what it sounds like, right? That, uh, you know, that idea that Sauron is not just like encasing them or surrounding them or something like that, um, but that he is filling them, right? That there is this sort of special portion of his power that he places in them in order to empower them, in order to enable them to interact. That, um, yeah, he is the filling. Sauron is the filling. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, Lupita, yeah, I agree. It, it is almost like that sort of cloaking, and I'm using the word cloaking here uh, in the, again, the metaphorical, not the literal cloaks, um, but um, uh, the metaphorical cloaks that they had had before are more, less of a you know, a shell with which he has encased them and more of a kind of like container um, uh, in which his spirit is poured. That seems exactly right. Um, uh, so yes, the ring wraiths would be like a particularly evil Twinkie, Valori. That's, that's, that's just it. Um, but, um, but yeah, so they have been emptied. Now they are empty and shapeless. Um, and I just, that just seems like a really apt and powerful word with which to characterize what is essentially the true nature of the ringwraiths, right? Left to themselves on their own, this is what they are. They are empty. They are these empty, shapeless, hopeless, enslaved spirits, right? Who still retain you know, will of their own, like in order, like they can, you know, go about and, and do things, right? They can speak and talk and perform their master's will, but um, the the kind of, you know, nothingness to which they have been relegated through the power of Sauron, through the corruption of their rings, um, is, I think, really evocatively conveyed by Gandalf in that phrase, empty and shapeless. Um, I agree. I'll... Um, Almaria, I don't think they can know joy anymore. Yes, they're thralls, Amethorn, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and Michael, it is a contrast with whites who can still interact on their own. Although, remember, um, empty and shapeless, it's, um, it's not unlike what happens to the Wraith when Tom Bombadil sends it off, right? Um, what seems... T- and I think we can see a kind of parallel here. What seems to have been providing the ring wraith with, with its, um, its cloaking, right? What seemed to be filling, I guess? The, you know, the, uh, the evil cream filling in the center of the barrow white uh, was something connected with its barrow, right? With the, uh, with the, and when the power of the barrow was broken by Tom... Um, and the wraith was separated from it and banished from it out into the darkness, right? Um, off it went, I believe, empty and shapeless. Um, that, that's, except they have no master in Mordor to return to, right? So it's just going to wander out far beyond the darkness. Um, but, um, Yes, and I absolutely agree, uh, Lupita. I think that you're right. When the 
wraiths do waft their way home to Mordor, Sauron is going to uh, f- overfill their containers beyond the fa- manufacturer's recommended amount. Yes, he's going to fill them back up. He's going to top them off again when they get back home. But he's not just going to put the same quantity or degree of his spirit and will into them. He's going to he's going to buff them up, right? He's going to he's going to give them an extra dollop of uh, you know, evil cream filling um that he's going to fill them up with. Um uh they are going to be significantly more powerful next time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes, Matt, you're right. This ties, uh, Matt says this ties to the uh, irreducible fact that the physical is tied to the spiritual. Uh, one can't exist without the other. Um, without the vestments of Sauron's will, they are empty and shapeless and presumably powerless. Exactly. And of course, this is the destiny. Uh, we've seen it already with the, with the Barrow White. We're getting a foretaste of it here with the Ringwraiths. Um, of course, what, what we're getting is not a foretaste of their ultimate destiny. Their ultimate destiny is to finally be released from this enslavement, right? When Sauron is, is, is taken down and his power is broken. But it's Sauron's ultimate destiny, right? Empty and shapeless. That's going to be him um, when he's, when the ring is destroyed. Ooh. Spoiler. Um, uh, and of course, Saruman as well. Um, you know, all of those, we, we, we will see uh, a number of, em- we'll see and hear about a number of empty and shapeless uh, spirits. And so this, this is definitely a trend um, that we can, you know, discern so far. Um, and uh, yes, you're right, Matt, that Sauron's uh, refilling of the Ringwraiths uh, feels like a perversion of Gandalf's re-embodiment um, when he's sent back following his fight with the Balrog. I agree. I agree. Um, uh, so what emptied them, Hugo? Uh, the river, um, the spiritual boulders. Um, uh, <sighs> yes. Yes. I mean, so keep in mind that, uh, and this comes back to what Bjorning and Exile was saying before about the connection between the physical and the spiritual, right? Um, uh, they've been given a kind of embodiment. Here's another way to think about it. Um, and uh, Matt, I guess I would go one step further back from the, um, the, the, the refilling of the Nazgul being parallel to the re-embodiment or reincarnation of Gandalf right after his death. Um, we, we could go one step further back and say that they're embodiment in the first place, right? Like that, you know, when Sauron first corrupts these mortal creatures and then having corrupted them, what does he have? Right. Um, you know, when Sauron lo- looks about him, right. And is, uh, trying to, um, uh, you know, calculate what his assets are. Um, he's like, all right, so I've got these nine ghosts now, right? Whose butter is scraped over so much bread that they can't even, you know, they're still tied to the physical world, um, but they can, they can't even interact with the physical world. Um, so he's gotta, he's gotta do something in order to embody them. Well, uh, Matt, isn't that interestingly parallel to what happens with Gandalf and the Astari from the beginning, right? Where you've got these spiritual beings who don't have bodies, right? Can interact with the physical world, but don't have bodies and whom the Valar embody in order for them to 
uh, come to Middle Earth um, and interact with folks and take part in the struggle against Sauron, Sauron takes these wraiths who are enslaved to his will, and he sort of embodies them, partially embodies them. It's not a very thorough job, right? He doesn't really give them flesh, uh, like Gandalf has real flesh, like Gandalf has a like a heart that beats and, and blood that circulates and eyebrows that grow uh, and that kind of thing. Um, so, but the ringwraiths, sadly, have no eyebrows, um, which, yeah, I, I mean, I think I... The text doesn't explicitly say that, but I... Uh, um, uh, I think it's implicit. Um, but yes, exactly, Valori. Gandalf's arm can need a sling. We, we, we see that his, you know, his body is a, is a real, legit body, right? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Sauron's embodiment, his cloaking of the um, ringwraiths, is like it's parallel to but it's it's obviously not the same as like it's it, it's a, a very pale um uh a very pale imitation of the incarnation of the astari um yeah yeah um yeah that might be a way to think about it uh, Bjorning, uh, the nine rings have drawn them so far into the spiritual world that it requires Sauron's will to put them into the spirit, into the physical world. Um, uh, he says, let's see. And, uh, when the ties between them and the material world, uh, the, the, the cloaks are broken, they cease to exist in the material world and have to go back for more of Sauron's will. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. that's, that's, uh, uh, more or less the way that I'm thinking about it there. Um, Exactly, Torn Brother. So the imitation is so pale as for them to be nearly invisible. Yeah. Um, they All they can do is just interact with physical things, right? To give shape to their nothingness. That's, that's uh, you know, again, uh, what was those Aragorn's? Was that Aragorn or Gandalf's phrase? I'm forgetting now. Um, but, uh, but exactly. Um, yes. It will be interesting to watch the Nazgul interact with the material world when we see Nazgul 2.0. Yeah, Hrothgar, totally agree. Totally agree. Great to meet you in uh, at New England Moot this weekend, Hrothgar, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, and you're right. Even their senses are very limited, Lupita. You can absolutely see... Um, you can absolutely see the... Um, uh, the way in which... Um, uh, the limitations of their interactions with the physical world. You know, not only are they hard to see, right, um, th- uh, and even like to hear, like their voices are aren't awesome voices, right? I mean, like they, that they, they, you know, they hissing voices and stuff that are hard to understand, right? I mean, it's a you know, it's a voice, but it's not a great voice. Um, but um, but also they can't see, uh, they can't see very well, um, and. Yes, Matt, that's exactly where I was um, wanting to go next there. All this talk about cloaking and uncloaking, of course, inescapably, and especially with the parallel with the Astari that I was suggesting, makes us think of the passage where um, we met Gandalf the Grey uncloaked, or rather Gandalf the Grey threatened to uncloak himself, right? Or like partially uncloaked himself um, to Bilbo there um, in chapter one. 
which we clearly could see was an exertion of his power, right? He, to quote Gandalf later on, was putting forth all of his power, right? Um, you know, it required almost all of my power. You know, he, remember, he talks about how much power he had to put forward to help Bilbo in that moment. Um, he was acting, right? He was exerting his will in a sort of a raw form, right? He wasn't just being persuasive or something, right? He was putting forth his power. Um, uh, that, that speaking of Gandalf the Grey uncloaked, undisguised, um, revealed in his power. And you're right, Matt, that it's, we also see it in other places, like we will see Aragorn uncloaked uh, later on uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring as well. Um, uh, so, yes, yes. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, oh, sorry, back to the one other point that I almost made and then left behind, but I don't want to leave it behind completely. The connection between the physical and the spiritual. Um, there seems to be a real connection, right? Um, it matters when the physical form of a, an embodied spiritual being is slain, right? Sauron is going to die. He's done this before, right? Sauron's physical form has been destroyed previously, right? That's happened on two other occasions, um, at least, possibly three. <laughs> um, I think he didn't actually die because uh, Luthien let him go in the Silmarillion. Um, so he, he, I think he, I think he, he, he was only mostly dead um, in the Silmarillion. I mean, when he flees off, uh, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he still has his physical body uh, there. Um, but he definitely dies when he goes down with the island, right, in Numenor. Um, and he's definitely slain by Isildur and company uh, in the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, and he still has the power to regain sufficient strength to re-embody himself. Um, uh, but that's why, why he doesn't just pop back up again immediately. Um, it takes him a long time before he regains sufficient strength to reveal himself again. Um, at hundreds of years, you know, it takes hundreds, it's like a th more than, you know, a couple thousand years before he's really back in business again. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, he's, uh, hence the necromancy. Well, nah, necromancy works a little bit differently than that. Um, we talked about necromancy, uh, in Morgoth, in our Morgoth Ring discussion last year, um, there's some fascinating stuff about how necromancy really works, uh, and it's kind of horrifying, but it's not about fueling himself, exactly. It's about manipulating other people, basically. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, okay. So, uh, he... But anyway, the point is, when things are killed, it really matters. Like when their bodies are destroyed, it matters. This will matter with uh, this will matter with Sauron very much, of course. When the ring is destroyed, oops, again, spoiler. Um, the uh, th that that'll be even a bigger deal. When when Saruman is killed, it's it matters. It's a big deal. When the Balrog is killed, it's a big deal. When Gandalf is killed, it matters, right? Um, so. Uh, yeah, the cloaking of the Nazgul does not count as necromancy. No, no, no. Necromancy is about interacting with dead spirits. Um, okay, okay. 
Uh, here's the 30-second synopsis of Necromancy. Some elves, when they die, when they die, when, when their bodies die, their spirits are set free. They are invited, not compelled, to go to Valinor and go to the halls of Mandos. If they choose, they can stay. Their spirits can stay and kind of haunt Middle-earth. This is a bad idea, though. And when they do make that choice, they often go bad. And necromancy is uh, manipulating, dominating, and commanding those spirits of dead elves who have made poor life choices. There's the 30-second version of necromancy. Um, but anyway, okay, okay. So, um, uh, yeah, poor, poor afterlife choices, Valori, exactly. And, and some poor life choices leading up to it, usually. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah, I, no, uh, human fea can't do that, too. Uh, human fea, uh, the, the, the fear of, um, the fear of humans have a, have an appointment, right? They go to where the elves know not. Um, they cannot choose to hang about. I don't believe they can choose to hang about. Though sometimes their departure can be delayed, as, for instance, the Oathbreakers. But, um, anyway. Uh, no, it's not technically... Um, it's not technically necromancy, what Aragorn does at the Stone of Erech, for instance. But more more later, more later. Um, um, yeah, Nancy, you're right. Feanor did go to Mandos. So there you go. See, um, very few people have made poorer life choices than Feanor in life, but there are some who screwed up even more than Feanor after death. So there you are. Um, okay. Yeah, exactly, JJ. Uh, you've got to think uh, clearly. Iluvatar uh, gave the thumbs up uh, to the whole Oathbreaker situation, right? You know, like however that came about. But um, um, anyway, okay. Uh, trying to rein in this chain of digressions, necromancy, uh, uncloaked, Gandalf. Um, notice, though, something interesting. Notice that there's almost a reversal there, right? The uncloaking of the Nazgul is emptying them out, right? When the Nazgul were uncloaked, they're left empty and shapeless, right? Um, it is like, uh, who I don't know, Fourth Dauntless, I think maybe it was you, was kind of saying it's like um, they're the power that was in them is just kind of like spilled and runs out into the ground, right? It's, it's gone. Um, whereas when Gandalf you know, uncloaks himself or partially uncloaks himself um, in his interaction with Bilbo back in chapter one, he's he's not um, emptying himself, right? He's not losing anything. Um, it's like a positive instead of a negative uncloaking, certainly in its effect on others. Like he is, he uncloaks himself in order to give of himself to Bilbo instead of to, like, lose that which was imposed on him. You see what I mean? Like, it's... Um, uh, I, I'm not at all explaining that well. But um, but do you see what I mean about them kind of going in opposite directions there? Um, it's... Um, and I think that that is kind of telling, right? Although, that, that although there's a, a kind of superficial par- parallel... 
uh, to this whole cloaking business. Um, parallel between, as I said, between Gandalf and the Astari in general and the Ringwraiths, um, you can see a, perhaps a kind of imitation, right, um, on, uh, on Sauron's part. Now, I say an imitation on Sauron's part. He got in first, right? He did the Ringwraiths before the Astari came over. So it's not like he's parodying the Astari directly. Um, um, but of course, the whole business, it's all about... Um, it's all about that connection between the spirit and the body, between the Thea and the Hroa, to use the Elvish terms um, that Tolkien develops later on in his career. Um, uh, in other words, it's all, it's ultimately it's all patterned after the creation of the Hroambari of the incarnates, um, uh, elves and men, uh, by Iluvatar. Um, this joining together of the physical and the spiritual that happens in each incarnate person. Uh, we can see the Valar, presumably with permission, following that pattern in one direction, right, with the Astari. We can see um, Sauron having a go uh, from the other direction in what is much more of a kind of pragmatic parody, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, I, I'm forgetting totally how to pronounce that. Jacques, I guess. I'll just call you Jacques. Uh, I agree. It does seem like many of the great characters keep their power cloaked in their day-to-day -day interactions. Yes, that that um, kind of holding things in, right? Um, they don't... They, they go around with the volume turned down. Um, uh, that does... And it's... What that seems to me, Jacques, to be associated with, um, it seems to me to be associated with uh, or mm, counter-associated with... The, uh, the bad guys are bad guys. Like, what makes them bad guys? The defining element of bad guys is the... Uh, like uh, How you know... You, you may be a bad guy if, right, you are exerting your power on other people in order to assert your will over them and to dominate them, right? Um, good guys don't do that, right? I mean, it's kind of the definition of being a good guy or a bad guy uh, in Tolkien's world. And so I think, Jacques, that that's why um, the good guys cloak themselves, right? Why they hold it in, right? Why they are not, um, you know, why they're, the, the good guys are, are always sandbagging, right? Because uh, to do otherwise, uh, to uncloak themselves. That's why, like, you know, Gandalf is, like, warning Bilbo. Like, you know, um, I don't want to do this, but... Right. Uh, this looks like a, a time for extreme measures. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, absolutely. Son of Saradoc, um, the deadly sin of pride versus the grace of humility. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, um, a very strong correlation uh, with what we see there. Uh, very much. Very much. Um, uh, good. Good. Um, OK. There were some other words that jumped out at me in that first paragraph. The empty and shapeless were the main ones. Um, we may hope now, Amdir, uh, I believe, right? We have we have good grounds for believing that the ring wraiths were scattered and have been obliged. Obliged is an interesting word, 
right? They have no choice. Have been obliged to return as best they could, as best they could. It may take, it's going to be difficult for them. Um, wafting across the continent, not trivial. Um, does that have something to do with crossing all those rivers? We talked about that before. Um, but um, uh, but yes, they they have no choice. And this is one of the reasons, one of their grounds for hope, right? We can hope that they're scattered and have been obliged to return as best they can. So it's a, it's a, it's a great time for us to set out, right? Because they are definitely not hanging about. Um, you know, we talked about that, like, uh, you know, if they've been disembodied, well, they'd make ideal spies now, right? Um, even if they can't do anything about it, they could totally track them and, and know just where they were going, except no, they can't because they've been obliged to return to their master as best they could. Um, now, Lupita, that's a great question that I was kind of wondering in the back of my mind earlier before. Um, when they're empty, does the power return to Sauron or is it lost? I'm, I, I got lost. I'm, I'm, I'm going lost. Now, I don't think that uh, Sauron is very significantly weakened by this. Um, I think that... Uh, and this is one of the reasons, perhaps, that um, he did give them the kind of economy-level embodiment, right? Um, I mean, if he had wanted to... Presumably, this is me guessing now. Um, well, not 100% guessing. Um, but this is uh, this is uh, this is this is uh, this is a conclusion, right? Um, I infer. How about that? I infer that he could have done more. He could have given them more, um, but he didn't because it does take something from him to do it. But like uh, you know, but again, he's he's it's it's the it's the it's like the value pack of uh, of uh, you know it's 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 the the. Um, yeah, it's the economy grade version, because like, they don't even have physical like they can't even, they don't even have faces, right? I mean, it's um it's pretty um uh it's pretty low level, but but he um um later on the reason I infer this is that again we will see Nazgul two point um and I think we'll have reason to think that there's uh, an upgrade. The second time um, that he's put more of himself into them, um, I do think that it's a loss. Again, we don't know that for sure, but just based on what we've seen elsewhere, um, by elsewhere I mean with Melkor in the Silmarillion, when the bad guys disperse their will and power into other things in order to buff them up, right? In order first to dominate them and then to empower them to do the will to which they've enslaved them, right? Which is, this is a pattern. Melkor did it, right? Sauron's now doing it. Um, but we know it weakens them. It weakened Melkor. Um, we know it's going to weaken Sauron too. So I'm pretty sure. So I don't think there's any backseas on that. When they lose it, again, as I think Fourth Dauntless said before, it is like it's spilled out into the ground. It's, it's gone. Um, I, I would be, I feel almost certain of that. Um, so empowering them further, right? Supercharging the Nazgul can be done, but it's risky because he's going to have to take more of his own power um, uh, to do that. Um, Interesting. Ray says, does Saruman attempt to do that by controlling Theoden? I'm going with yes. Um, uh, I'm going with yes there, um, that he has to expend some of his power in the same way. Yep. Yep. Um, 
that seems to there seems to be some kind of like when you do that as far as we can see there's definitely some kind of uh you know uh it's not exactly like the law of conservation of energy but it's a little bit like it um there's um you know, um, Tonstoffel, uh, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch uh, when it comes to dominating your minions. So, you know, just remember that. Anyway, uh, Matt says, uh, we're looking back to our conversations about Weathertop when the Witch King is reporting back to Sauron about how he would not believe these hobbits and what they're capable of. That's a good reason for Nazgul 2.0. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for bringing up Weathertop. I was just going to comment on that at length. I'm teasing about that. But, um, but yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, uh, they, um, they need more juice. They need more juice. Uh, they're, um, it's lovely to imagine that uh, even not only have like, you know, Gandalf and Glorfindel and Aragorn contributed perhaps to Sauron's decision to uh, uh, supercharge the ring rates next time. Like I gotta, I gotta, I gotta raise the bar here or else uh, they're not going to be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Uh, but it's seems also possible that Frodo uh, on Weathertop and maybe even <laughs> Farmer Maggot and Gaffer Gamgee might've contributed uh, to uh, uh, Sauron's decision to uh, up the ante a little bit. Um, yes. And it, you guys are exactly correct that that distribution of yourself, that uh, dispersal of your own power and the uh, accompanying weakening of the self is exactly what Sauron does through the instrument of the One Ring. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, Sarah, what a fascinating question. Doesn't Aragorn's will keep the company together on their way to the Stone of Erech? Is he expending power as well? Um, well, we'll look at that, right? I don't want to, I don't go too deeply into that because we need to, we need to sort of see how it's described and see, you know, do some comparison and contrast when we get there. Um, in general, no, um, just as I don't think that Gandalf is weakened. It's, it's not like he's permanently weakened by helping Bilbo. Um, again, it works differently with the good guys and the bad guys. Um, they're not trying to do the same thing. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's different. Yeah, exactly. Aragorn isn't dominating them, but anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but it is a really interesting parallel. That's a, that's a, that's a, a wonderful place to look at, uh, to see how does it work? Does it work differently? If so, how exactly is it different? Wherein do the differences lie? That's a, it's a wonderful question. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, we'll, uh, but we'll we'll get there, and we'll look at other examples of similar kinds of things, like what we're talking about with Gandalf uh, before. We'll see other Gandalfian instances of Gandalf exerting his power, um, and so we'll have opportunities even in this very chapter, uh, perhaps, to talk about that. Um, so, um, okay, mm, but, okay. Uh, I'm done. Next paragraph. If that is so, it will be some time before they can begin the hunt again. Great. So we know it's going to take them a long time to waft as best they can to their master in Mordor. Of course, the enemy has other servants. Of course. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he has other servants. Whom? 
Who's Gandalf talking about here? Orcs? Uh, uh, among the servants of the enemy are such diverse elements as so this comes back to what we were talking about last week <laughs> midges <laughs> clearly nigger <laughs> breakers yeah um yeah yeah so um i think we have to be a little cautious here i think the answer is we don't know we don't know um it seemed clear Last time. Remember when they were saying that there were no servants of the enemy found anywhere? Right? Um, and I think that we can disprove that that means spies and folks who have been suborned into even willful and knowing service of the enemy. Again, Bill Fernie being our classic example, right? Um, really? The lands to the west of Rivendell are completely free of the servants of the enemy. Uh, Aragorn knows just where Bill Fernie lives, right? I mean, like, uh, yeah. So clear, I, it seems clear that that's not what they mean, right? So who exactly was being referred to by the narrator in the previous passage when saying no servants of the enemy were found. One conclusion we were saying from that is it seems clear that that means there are no armies of orcs on the move. Okay. Probably true, right? Probably true. Um, but um, I... But I wonder if it means other things. If it means other things... When he says, of course the enemy has other servants... I don't think it just means orcs. I have a kind of suspicion that Gandalf here is referring to, like, again, he's he's talking about the ring race. This this whole discussion here, uh, you know, in these two, like, this whole quote from Gandalf, this two paragraph quotation from Gandalf, is him talking about the ring wraiths. Um, and then segueing from that to saying, of course, the enemy has other servants. I suspect that are similar to, in some way, to uh, uh, to them. I do not believe the Krabine from Dunland count. I don't think so. Um, yes. Um, yes, Arden Crayon, not all of his servants and chattels are wraiths. That means some of them are men. Um, but... Um, it is true that Sauron has corrupted men around Middle-earth to his service, but again, that's true locally, and they don't seem to count. Uh, <laughs> Turambar is wondering if Sauron has lesser ring wraiths, like ring wraiths wraithified by the lesser rings of power. Uh, still dangerous, because uh, 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 the lesser rings... Gandalf said, we're still dangerous to mortals uh, in his eyes. Um, possibly, yeah. Um, Ray Burns points out that it was mentioned that Sauron was calling all evil things. Um, yeah. Well, all I say is this. Let's keep our minds open, right? 
Um, and I would add this. I think in the Fellowship of the Ring in particular, it is important for us not to think we know all the answers in advance, right? When we hear a phrase like, of course, the enemy has other servants, if you find yourself immediately supplying a list, oh, yeah, I can give you the whole menu, right? I can give you the whole roster of the enemy's servants. And you start ticking off your list of things that you know of from later in the books, right? Um, careful, careful, because... Um, There's a lot of stuff that's still there in the Fellowship of the Ring that uh, Tolkien is still discovering stuff, you know, um, and uh, there's some um, there's some wild and crazy things coming up um, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, so um, let's just uh, two these two statements about the servants of the enemy have been vague, extremely vague. And let's just uh, accept those in their vagueness. And let's be on the lookout and see whom we meet who might qualify as a servant of Sauron. Um, they will have to journey all the way to the borders of Rivendell before they can pick up our trail. What does that tell you? What does that tell us about the servants? We have gotten one piece of information about the servants in question that Gandalf is referring to. Hathalos, yeah, they're far away. They're not local. Yeah, it's not Bill Fernie we're talking about, right? Um, all the way, I presume that means from Mordor. They'll have to journey all the way to the borders of Rivendell. So, like, the ring raids are going to waft back to Mordor, report when they get there, and then the other servants are going to have to set out from Mordor. Doesn't say explicitly from Mordor. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think we're talking about Bill Fernie here. Um, now, Jacques, I can agree that Gandalf is perhaps pondering this and unsure of who exactly is or isn't in the enemy's servant, uh, in the enemy's service. Yes, though again, I don't think we're talking about secret double agents here. Um, if we wanted to, I bet you we could find, hey, um, JJ or anybody who has the e-text, do a quick look, do a quick look, search for the word servant. Because I think this is used about Sauron in other places, like uh, he has other more useful servants, for instance. Or aren't there places where the ring rates are called the most terrible of his servants? Yes, he has many more useful servants. Yeah, exactly. That's the one I was thinking, but he won't forget you again. Um, even when the ring rates are being sent out, we're told... Um, uh, there you go. That's the, one of the other passages I was remembering in the back of my head there, J.J. Nine he gave to mortal men, proud and great, and so ensnared them. Long ago they fell under the dominion of the one and became ringwraiths, shadows under his great shadow, his most terrible servants. Most terrible. So he has other 
uh, uh, servants of inferior terribleness, right, to the ringwraiths, but still presumably terrible in its own right, in their own right, right? But again, this makes me think we're not talking about Bill Fernie here, right? Um, good. Uh, excellent. I, I I thought that this would be fruitful. Uh, uh, so JJ also gives me, you mean the riders? I feared they were servants of the enemy, says Frodo to Gildor. What are the black riders? Is it not enough to know that they are servants of the enemy? Flee them. Speak no words to them. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, notice how all of those... Um, Oh, good. JJ says, you have frightened me several times tonight, but never in the way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. Now, that's Frodo speaking, JJ. So, I would theorize there that Frodo is thinking, he is thinking about spies, people who are in the service of the enemy, but um, but not necessarily, not just double agents. Like, Bill Fernie doesn't freak him out in the way that he's, when he talks about um, being frightened in the way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine, I think what he is talking about is something like the really bad, creepy feeling that you get when you're near the Nazgul, right? Um, that if there were some being, right, some evil spirit in Sauron's service, um, embodying or possessing or what, I mean, like, Frodo doesn't know. He's imagining, right, the kind of hor- horrifying things that he might encounter. Um, and he seems to be imagining that kind of, um, that kind of things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And then there's that one, the chattels and wraiths, and uh, not all of the servants and chattels are wraiths, rather. Um, and there he does, uh, Gandalf does seem to be talking about, that's more inclusive. Not all of his servants and chattels are wraiths. Well, hang on a second. Let me read the whole passage. Um, why do the horses endure them? Frodo is asking, because these horses are born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord in Mordor. Not all of his servants and chattels are wraiths. There are orcs and trolls, there are wargs and werewolves, and there have been and still are many men, warriors and kings that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway and their number is growing greatly. So, who's which? Which of those are servants and which of those are chattels? Chattels means property, possessions, right? I am not convinced that he's referring to the many men, warriors, and kings as servants. I think those probably count as chattels, given that Gandalf says that they are under his sway, right? Um, Maybe, maybe they count as servants. Um, Orcs and trolls, wargs and werewolves. Also, uh, note for future times. Wargs and werewolves, right? Those are two different things, according to Gandalf. Let's remember that. Um, okay. Yeah. And the horses. The horses count as chattels as well, right? I don't think he's referring to the horses as the servants here. Um but exactly, Bard. That's how I read it, too. That servants implies a level of consent or at least willing corruption, and chattels implies slaves. Yes. Yes, I agree. Now, ironically, Bard, by that definition, the ringwraiths are chattels because they're completely enthralled to him, right? And yet, they um, they signed up for this, right? So I think, I think they qualify as servants. Um, and yet, you know, he dominates even his servants, right? Um, 
but um yeah, good. Turambar, yes, apparently Sauron still has werewolves. Um, we know that Sauron is into werewolves. Sauron seems to have invented werewolves, as far as we can tell, uh, in the first age. Um, he's the lord of werewolves and his, uh, you know, tower in Garhoth, uh, uh, Tolingarhoth, his t- the tower of uh, the werewolves, um, uh, you know, where he hung out before he got taken out uh, by Luthien and Huon. Um is uh, uh, is you know was uh, Sauron's play? So yeah, he's associated with werewolves in the Silmarillion. Um, still a thing, still a thing. Apparently, according to Gandalf. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yes, Arden Cran, you are right that Gandalf will refer to himself as a servant as well. Um, let's. Uh, so let's think about this. Well, I mean, let's think about this as we move forward. The word servant will be an interesting one to see. And yes, I apologize to like 20 of you uh, who were trying to make, who were making this point earlier. I didn't miss it, but I wanted to finish talking about that and come back around to this. Um, uh, Yeah. Sam's status as a servant um, does begin to kind of sound like a bigger deal, right? Um, Yeah. Yes, uh, in place of the, you know, ring wraiths, Frodo will have Sam. Um, yes. Okay. Anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, let's. Uh, we'll see. We'll see more of this as we as we move forward. All right. Um, He has other servants. They have to journey all the way to the borders of Rivendell before they can pick up our trail. That's optimistic. Um, I think that that sentence must logically hinge on his statement that follows. And if we are careful, that will be hard to find. Our trail, that is. Um... That's only true. That is, it's only true that they will have to journey all the way to the borders of Rivendell before they can pick up our trail. Um, That's only true if they don't do anything to reveal their current location later on. Right. Um, There are basically three possibilities, right? Um three ways in which the servants of the enemy could locate the Fellowship of the Ring when they set out. One is, as Gandalf says, going back to the borders of Rivendell and trying to pick up their trail from there. Like, we know they set out from Rivendell, right? The last place that the ring, the ring was definitely in Rivendell. If it set out, which way did it go from there? Um, so optimally, he'll have to send servants all the way to the fringes of Rivendell and start the hunt from there. The second option, and clearly the worst option, is if they do something to reveal themselves later on so that they can just make a beeline to where they were at that point, right? And the third option is, would be, like, logically, would be for them to, uh, for him to search not, like, right around, but to, like, put a cordon around Rivendell, right? To try to find... um, 
the trail departing at a at a wider radius. But that recovers that requires covering a whole lot of ground, especially since and remember this is what was so important about the scouting and stuff, especially if he has no idea even which direction they've set out, right? Um, if like so, for instance, if Sauron knew for a fact that they were headed east, right? Um, to Lorien or to Gondor or whatever, then all he's got to do is search the passes over the mountains, right? And there's a limited number of those. Um, so if he just has to go and search the paths over the mountains, or like set up ambushes at every single pass across the mountains, um, already kind of having the uh, Gap of Rohan cover this... Saruman kind of has it. Saruman totally has it covered. Sauron sort of has it covered in that he is uh, partially, but not completely in charge, you know, running Saruman down there. Um, but uh, exactly, JJ, he could set roadblocks all along the county line. Um, yes, it's possible for him to try to do that. Um, again, this is why it's so important for them to conceal the direction that they're heading. Um and it is possible, Kurtzimus, that he would believe that they that the ring would stay in Rivendell for a while. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, Bjorning in Exile is wondering if Gandalf is hoping to draw Sauron out to attack Rivendell while the Fellowship skips through the emptied lands east. I wonder. I wonder. Um... I don't think he's imagining a march in power right away from Mordor. I don't think that the goal is to try to induce that. I mean, we, it doesn't happen anyway. Like, Sauron doesn't pick up and, you know, bring his own self up there. That was discussed, right? Um, you know, the coming of the enemy in the end. Um, that was discussed. Uh, but, um, and it, it sounds like unless that did happen, they could hang tight in Rivendell and defend it against the enemy. Um, but um, but it doesn't sound like uh, Sauron is planning that particular move. However, if he does send a bunch of his... If he sends all of his second best servants um, into Eriador, uh, you know, up to Rivendell, uh, trying to find the direction they went from Rivendell, while the company hightails it south then, yeah, then that's, uh, I mean, hey, the fewer of Sauron's second best servants are, you know, east of the mountains, the better, right? Um, I would think, Aronos, that he'd be waiting for the new Ringlord to establish power locally. Probably. Yeah, probably. Um, yes. Now, Fourth Dauntless, you're right. That in, in our discussion during the council, uh, we decided that the good guys had severely underestimated Sauron's current ability to make war. Trying to draw him to attack Rivendell in the north would seem foolish if he's as weak as they supposed. Um, that is, his attack on Rivendell in the north would be foolish if he's as weak as they supposed? Is that what you mean, Fourth Dauntless? Um, yeah, I'm also not at all sure that it's not like he's going to empty Mordor, you know. It's not like all of his armies are in Mordor, even, necessarily. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, it would be foolish of him if there, if he's 
still is relatively, they don't think he's super weak, but if he still is relatively weak as they think he is, if they're still underestimating him as, as it seems, we have evidence to think that they are, that he is, that they are, um, then he would be a fool to do it, but he's not a fool. So any attempt to induce that would be unlikely to succeed. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be, I don't see much evidence to believe that that is, um, uh, much in their, uh, plans. I don't see much clear evidence to suggest that that's what they're hoping for, precisely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, if they can at least focus the attempts of his spies on Rivendell, especially since, Aranas, if you think about it, um, if you think about that map, right? Uh if he's going to head straight to Riven, if if the second best servants of the enemy are going to hot foot it all the way to the borders of Rivendell, how are they going to get there? Um, well, they're unlikely to go through Lorien to get there. Um, they're unlikely, I think, to go through the gap, the gap of Rohan. First of all, that's the longest distance route. Um, so it's going to be slowest to get there that way. And secondly, you've got, again, Saruman, the dubiously reliable servant down there. Um, I think that he's likely to send them north up through the Anduin Valley and across the mountains right close to Rivendell. That would seem like the obvious place um, to, uh, for the obvious route for the second best servants of Sauron to take as they are coming up to Rivendell. Um, probably for one of those top two passes, either that you know the, the pass by the source of the Gladden River or the high pass up by the Carrick, um, especially the high pass up by the Carrick um, is uh, uh, right next to Rivendell, right? So they would emerge, they would come into Eriador right on the spot where they want to be. And yes, it's all uh, it's all under the eyes of the Eagles, Arnas. So the Eagles would be likely to see that, which is why it's important that the Eagles have not seen uh, any servants schlepping up in that direction. Um, and I do suspect that Sauron's forces would have an easier time crossing the mountains up there, Bjarnasoner, because um, the I do not believe the goblins are going to resist them. They're going to be working with the servants of Sauron, especially if he sends someone, even, even if he's sending, like, really minor league wraiths, like the lesser ring wraiths or something like that, right? Or whoever his, not quite as terrifying as the ring wraiths servants are, right, that he might send on this mission, they will probably be sufficiently terrible uh, to impress the goblins of the Misty Mountains, I would think. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jordan, you seem to have a really high opinion of Grishnak. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I share your esteem for Grishnak here. Um, I think that, uh, um, well... I think that Grishnok's shoulders needed removing of a swollen head, to be perfectly frank, but we'll get to him later on. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Uh, all right. Yeah. So anyway, I get, that's, of course, pure speculation. We have no idea exactly what route they would take. But again, if we're, you know, the scouts, we're sitting here in Rivendell, it seems a pretty good gamble anyway. So yet another reason to head directly south through Holland, 
right down to the Redhorn Gate through Lorien and that that way because then Lorien covers you when you get there right you're going to vanish off the map as far as uh, as far as Sauron and his servants are concerned right when you right when you get over so so yeah I think that um it seems a really good plan um, uh, for them to avoid the other servants, for them to uh, avoid Saruman. It's um, it's it's excellent. Now, I agree, uh, Kursimus, that there is not no gamble associated with going through Lorien, but we'll get there soonish. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I agree, uh, uh, Bjorning. Um, a pretty good gamble is um Amdir in action. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah. Okay. Um but we must delay no longer. Um yeah, Tornbar wants to get back to um uh can we get back to why it's important that the ring wraiths were scattered? Um yes. Well so remember um <laughs> yes, Bricktails, at least one in ten, ten odds, maybe as good as uh, one in seven uh, for Thoughtless. I think any loony would gamble on that. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I, I've made several uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress references tonight. We just finished discussing uh, that Heinlein book in our Mythgard Academy class. Um, but um, yeah, uh, the scattering of the wraiths does seem important. Um, and notice that's where he starts. Yet we may hope now that the ring rates were scattered and they have been obliged to return as best they could. Right. So that's a good thing. But the scattering is step one. Right. First, have they scattered? Um, I don't know that we can. Um, um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I see or understand fully the mechanism of this yet. But we have several pieces of evidence that tell us that the Nazgul are stronger when they are gathered together. Um, is it because they have all been filled with that, you know, the evil, you know, creamy filling of Sauron's power and that it like, um, like basically since his power is in each one of them. Some of his powers in each one of them. When they are together, you know, it's like, I mean, it's all one power. It's like his power is sort of like unified. So it's kind of like Voltron, except with wraiths, right? Um, maybe not. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, it's something I, 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 Again, I don't know that I can explain the metaphysics of it, but we are told that that is true, that when they are gathered together and the witch king in particular, when he is there with them um, and when they are with him, like when they are all nine together, they um, they are much stronger. It's it is there. It is a more than simply additive power that they have. there seems to be some kind of geometric rather than purely arithmetic combination um, of their power <clears throat> when they are together. That's what we're led to believe. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
is this connected? Are we being given some indirect insight into how that works with this whole emptiness concept that we were that we've been talking about? Uh, perhaps, perhaps again, if it it does make sort of a sort of sense, because it's not their own power, right? It's not just this is not just the power of combination, uh, to quote um, Abraham Van Helsing. Um, uh, this is. Uh, the power that they can exert is not their own native power. Again, it's not like Gandalf uncooking himself, right? It's the power that's been um, put into them by Sauron, the the power with which they've been filled. Um, That seems to be able to be combined in this kind of amplified state. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. So they were scattered. If they weren't scattered, could they have reformed? Would they be in better shape? Is it possible they could still be a threat even in their shapelessness? Um, I don't know, but it seems conceivable. Um, Or perhaps, perhaps he's merely, Gandalf here, is merely stating the same thing in two different ways. Right? We may hope now that they were scattered and have been obliged to return empty and shapeless. Like maybe that's like, again, just two ways of saying the same thing. They're now empty and shapeless. And so they are scattered now that they are empty and shapeless. They are scattered because they're empty and shapeless. They can't combine anymore. That seems more likely really of the two possibilities. Um, that is like they're empty and shapeless and thank goodness they're also scattered or else we could still be in trouble. That's one way of reading it. But I think the other way is more likely that they've been scattered because they were empty and shapeless, not because they all washed up down the river in different places, right? Because it's not about their, they didn't have physical bodies, right? Their cloaks, cloaks got ripped off, but that wasn't the problem. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Um, Exactly, Cook. Not just scattered numerically, but literally their essences have been scattered. I wonder. I mean, I no, I think when he says scattered, it means the nine of them, right, were scattered from each other. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't... Right, Chris was wondering the same thing. Um, maybe each individual was scattered in some sense. It's, it's another way of describing that emptying out, right? Possibly. It's possible that it's both. It's possible that it's both. Um, yeah, yeah. Nancy says, it sure would be helpful when deciding these things if we had an Astari who had studied the rings of power. Yeah. Can't you see how useful it would be to really spend, invest some time studying the arts of the enemy, right? I mean, it'd be just, it'd be so useful to be able to understand this. We could do so much good if only we understood better how the arts of the enemy worked. Is that so much to ask? Right. I think if our intentions are right, if the ends that we're shooting for are sufficiently noble, it might be a good idea. Maybe we should try that out. Um, yeah. Yeah, we could. We could. Yeah. Next week, we could move on to breaking things to find out how it works. Valoria, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, yep. Yep. Um, absolutely. Great. Well, with these. Um, <laughs> with, with with these very constructive suggestions, I think we should probably stop. I was uh, 
contemplating rashly moving on to a second slide, but that's um, uh, that's uh, that's just silly. Um, though I do agree that um, the uh, um, <laughs> yeah, Erev Newman, are you right? We must delay longer. Uh, I agree with uh, uh, with the. Uh, the comment before that uh, we, we we must delay no longer is clearly the like implicit subtitle of this uh, this whole program right um, yeah yeah exactly um, <laughs> we must delay our break of day yeah something like that JJ exactly all right um, yeah we were talking about this a little bit at New England Moot you know it's like how much are we still slow are we still slowing down significantly like is that and I you know we've been on a pretty steady one slide per class pace, uh, you know, that's, I think that's been our average now for a little while now. Of course, the slides aren't exactly the same number of uh, words, right? But, um, uh, but uh, you know, we're, I, I think we've hit a groove here. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, very good. Very good. Okay. Um, so thank you guys for joining us. We will see ne- next week. We will meet with Elrond, and we will begin the formation of the Fellowship of the Ring is scheduled to commence next time, and pretty soon. It's going to be time, actually, to depart from Rivendell. So how about that? Um, All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We're going to uh, shift to our field trip now. We will be back next week. Um, Next week will be uh, our final session prior to... um, uh, uh, prior to middle moot. Um, but I will be back from middle moot by Tuesday as well. So there shouldn't be any disruption there. And don't forget the nature of middle earth, right? We're going to be discussing probably chapters three and four. Uh, I'm guessing, um, maybe we'll get frisky and get as far as five, um, in uh, nature of middle earth tomorrow night, 10 PM. So that'll be a lot of fun. Um, all right, let us, uh, move forward into our field trip here. I got my birthday update. So happy. Okay, here we go. All right, we're still. Uh, Good evening, everyone. We're still stable mastering it, aren't we? Uh, yes, I believe so. I'll correct. be with you in a moment. I'm finishing an instance. Okay. So All tell right. them about the Twinkies, sir. <laughs> tell them about the Twinkie. <laughs> Uh, that is uh, probably the most quoted movie in my household. Yeah, it's, it's a tie between that and like, uh, oh, and when I, when I was a kid growing up, it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was the other big one. Ah, I see. Yeah. Um, they don't come any yeah, closer than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, uh, Yeah, apart from obvious and inescapable Tolkien quotations, I think that uh, in my household, it's uh, uh, Ghostbusters and Pride and Prejudice get the most quotations um, on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. Rothgar, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a very logical pairing. Um, well, Rothgar, the, the number, the, the number one thing that, um, the number one thing that, uh, um, that Pride and Prejudice and Ghostbuster 
Ghostbusters have in common is my wife. Uh, really, like that's the that's uh, that's really the the link there. That's um, like a punchline to a joke that missed the setup. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of Green Gables is up there, uh, Rowan, yeah. for sure, for sure. Um, uh, top five, I think definitely. Anik, but uh, Anik Kurfu. Anik Kurfu, yeah. Um, yeah. My my brother and I are trying to think about sibling tattoos, and all we can think of are all the movies that we're constantly quoting. They yeah. Indiana Jones. They have uh, the Goonies. Yeah, I do think, of course, uh, the Holy Grail and uh, uh, Princess Bride yeah. probably round out the yeah. top five in Absolutely. my household. But yeah, that's a good. Uh, uh, Princess Bride was our hair cutting movie. Every time it was time for mom to give all three of us haircuts, she'd sit us down and she'd put into Princess Bride because that was exactly how long it took to cut all three of us. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. The yeah, I um. Coming along with the soundtrack, you know, it's like. <laughs> right. Right. Um, um, let's see, let's see. Oh, Emily wants to know what's a typical Pride and Prejudice quote. Um, uh, I, let's see. Um, uh, and very likely more is one of our favorites. Um, uh, um, but of course, I never complain uh, is another one. Um, um my own personal favorite is I would by no means suspend any pleasure of yours. Um, I often say that to my wife. Um, uh, uh, I accuse my husband of, uh, of uh, did you not know how I suffer? <laughs> right. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. affecting my nerves enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also like obstinate, headstrong girl, which I often obstinate, headstrong girl is a good one. Yeah. 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 Uh, yes. Uh, obstinate, headstrong girl. I am ashamed of you. We usually, we usually will finish that one. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's um, when I, I'm ashamed to admit that I'm creating a Sims world that is completely populated with all of the Jane Austen characters. <laughs> hey, that, that sounds like a fun project. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, Jordan. No, it's really fun. Yeah, no, Jordan. We are we are exclusively we're exclusively quoting the book, and uh, if we do when we do think of uh, adaptation, it's totally the ninety five. There's not even any question about yes, that. Yes, although I do like the line "What excellent boiled potatoes!" I think that one's the only one to pass muster. <laughs> oh yes, are the shades of of whatever it is to be so polluted? Yep, yeah, that right. one is that that one has come out before. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's applicable to uh, uh, to many other places. Yeah. Um, I, I finally finished Pemberley the other day, and I was very happy to put up shades in Pemberley. Oh, cool! <laughs> you put up shades in Pemberley. Yeah, nice, yes. nice. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's funny. I, I, I we we find ourselves quoting uh, Mrs. Bennett and Lady Catherine most often, actually. Um, uh, because they have some of the best quotes, um, or Mr. Bennett, fun. Uh, big fan, big big fan of Mr. Bennett myself. Fun fact: Cordova, the community manager, has a cat named after Miss Elizabeth Bennett. Oh, there you go. Love that. And she is a big floof. I do like the floofs. Chrissy, are you on right now? I am. I just got to end that crew from waiting for the stable master to manifest. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's always a fun waiting. All right, yeah, we just got to Drangle, and we're going to head up soon here. Um, so our project this week, um, picking up from where we left off last week, is um, uh, 
to try to see if we can piece together. We're going to move up into, we're going to go up the stairs and see if we can explore around here on the outer walls and the, the upper portions um, of uh, Gundabad here. And we will, um, uh, we will see, I want to see if we can try to construct uh, a timeline archaeologically based on what we see. Um, because there are clearly several different layers of occupation here, right? Um, so, I mean, like, let's, let's start off, let's start off by, um, let's start off by, by, by stating the obvious. The obvious facts are we clearly have at least two different layers of dwarvish occupation, there's the original dwarvish, ar- dwarvish architecture, and then there's the repair work, right? So we don't know for sure what else necessarily is associated with the second wave of dwarves, but that there was a second wave of dwarves is demonstrated clearly by the dwarvish scaffolding that's there to repair the old stuff, right? Yes. So clearly, um, uh, clearly there were uh, dwarves here on two widely separated occasions. I just wanted to see if I can see any of these uh, hobgoblins that I was missing before. Get too far uh, us. <laughs> you're a defiler. You're of no use. You're of no interest to There's me. There's mischief afoot. Yeah, there are. Um, but um, okay, so there's obviously two different, um, two different times, at least two different times, uh, when dwarves were here. There is obviously, you know, there's these. Um, goblin camps, which are plainly quite recent, um, and just as clearly post-date the second layer of dwarvish occupation, right? As we can see, the dwarvish scaffolding that has been erected around the old dwarf ruins um, is decorated with bones, right? So clearly, clearly the orcs were here latest, then, then into this uh, calculation, right? We then also have the um, uh, we then also have the Angmarim Castle, right? Yes. So we need to fit that into the uh, chronology as well, um, mm-hmm. and possibly as we've seen, you know, we've speculated before, of course, from our time in Angmar, um, two different layers of Angmarim presence as well. The old Angmarim, like during the time of the Witch King, back early in the Third Age, and then the later, um, you know, renovation of uh, of all things Angmarim during the late days under the False King, etc., etc. Yeah. Right? Fishhook days, yes. Yeah, Fishhook days, exactly. Um, what is up with this stalker? Is that a cat or a dog? It's a warg? It's a warg. Why does it have a lion's tail and mane? I think it's kind of hyena-ish. It's very not wolfish, for sure. Don't know what kind of tails hyenas have. Me neither. What kind of tails do hyenas have? Not much of one, do they? I don't think they have long tails like lions. That was definitely a lion tail that it had. Yeah. Maybe it's like a werewolf warg. Like a were-lion? Were-lion. Maybe. They're lions. They're lions. They're castles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's go up the stairs here. 
And let's see what we see up here, anything that might help us with our dating. Is this a, no, these are defilers. Defilers aren't fun. No. I want to see how, see, like there's a lion tailed and maned dude again. Yep. Okay, his mane is pretty scruffy, admittedly. He's got like a mane mohawk going on, but yeah. definitely has a lion's tail with a tuft at the end and everything. Yeah. Okay. So. Sauron was trying out a new model. Right. Which way do you think we should go? Let's go. This uh, is the shorter way. Left oh, is the shorter I way, right? Poisoned. I'm getting poisoned too. Oh, yeah. Defilers. That was that was more poison than usual. That was quite a lot of poison. Okay, all right. Bricktails has just uh, posted some hyena pictures. Yeah, hyenas have these bushy tails. Bushy tails, huh? Yeah, short bushy tails. Intriguing. Yep. Okay. All right. So. Oh yeah, I suppose I should ask. Chronologically, the present day up here is fourth age, right? As uh, um, Nancy was just asking. Yes, is that right? This is after the yes. This is after the new year. It's after the new okay. year, right? So, so yeah, fourth age. So we're in the fourth age, but I mean, you know, only just in the fourth age. So it's yeah, yeah. Right, it's, not, it's like, not it's that like much time has passed. But the first part of it's still the seventies. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it doesn't really feel like a new decade yet. Okay. Oh, this is it. We're already at a dead end. There's nothing behind the elephant. Well, no, I, I think, think so. a lot of this is going to be in the new pack that's coming out. Nope. Nope. Okay. I guess not. Then maybe. Okay. Oh, hang on. Oh, look, we can still, right can area still carry on. Building, I, I was just trying to see what, what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for here is, oh, like we've kind of moved up to another level. Um, oh, yep. it's another century and more wargs, man. What? Anyway, what I'm looking for is to see if it joins up with um, the Angmarim Castle at all. That's why I wanted to head over this way first. Uh, see you. But down here, we're getting looking at the landscape, by which I mean the architecture and ruins. We're getting all really jumbled ruins, just like we see down on the ground level, right? Yeah. These uh, stripy things, but we're closer. Up to now, those those are meant to be windows in the. No, I thought walls? we determined they weren't because we went inside a hollow one. Well, the diamonds definitely aren't. Oh, oh, oh! You mean these little uh, sort of uh, little? Yeah, in the in the there. like marble faces there. Oh. oh, this troll is totally blocking my vision here. He's so rude. No, stable faculty, everyone. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, the, uh, the, these, um, uh, what are they? Like the hexagonal rows of windows in the face of the walls here. Yeah, I think those are definitely windows there. Yeah. Oh, hey, look at that. You see the little row of, uh, row of little square holes in those walls? Um, in the wall. That's really cool. Yeah. Like you can see where the original scaffolding was when they built the wall. Oh, is that what it is? I think so. Oh. That's that's often what it is uh, when you because it's not unusual to be able to see like rows of square holes like that in in the outside of walls. Um, 
in like medieval castles and stuff. Um, and normally that's like, you know, they had to, they had to, you know, to, to support the wooden scaffolding that was, uh, you know, used to erect the, it's pot. What the little ones, do you think the little ones hologram could be murder holes? I don't think so. Those are too little. Um, murder holes meeting with for, for arrows and archers. Yeah. Or like just where you like, yeah, drop and or shoot things out of, um, yeah, I don't know exactly why they didn't go beam ends. Yeah, like a place where either beams went in from the outside or where beams come out from the inside is just what that looks like to me. The little square rows, perfectly, you know, even rows. And we can see some a second row right below the darker brown up at the top. Can't we? I think so. Lined up with the ones down below. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Uh, yeah, I dig it. And then you can power wash it later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think they're not really positioned like murder holes uh, that normally you want something where you can drop things, not just kind of shove things out and have them ooze down the wall or whatever. Um, you wouldn't get much air with that. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. I mean, you could shoot out of it, but it's 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 too small. You need even a, you know an arrow is pretty small, but you need to be able to aim right. And you've got the thickness of the wall to deal with. You need to you need a bigger, bigger spot. Yeah. Um, uh, than that, but anyway, okay. So we is this is this the end of the? No, it's not. We we're still kind of going over here. Oh yeah. Um, we've got uh, so more, uh, but I think oh. this looks like the end of the road. Yeah, this is definitely the end of the road. Um. Yep, and there's the Angmarim, the top of the Angmarim. No, oh, there's the tower right over there. So yeah. So it was never attached. No. Okay, so this is an interesting little data point here, right? Um, the Angmarim Fortress down there on the, you know, by the lake, you know, the waterfront Angmarim property down there, um, yeah. was never attached to the walls up here. It was built mm -hmm. near, but not right on top of um, the walls of, Gond of Gondaman. Um, also, Below, like definitively below, which suggests I, to me they clearly had no fear. Like there was clearly no like I don't know like antagonism or rivalry. The people who built that fortress down the hill had no fear of anybody coming from this direction. Clearly, because like this place was uninhabited at the time. It must have been. I think they they don't seem to have used it because they went out of their way to build this whole separate fortress. Like, why do you do that? If you have this other perfectly good fortress, except maybe it wasn't perfectly good. You know, maybe it wasn't really well, defensible yeah. at the time. Maybe. I mean, yeah, it does make you wonder why would they go, if there's no one here, why not just move in here unless they thought maybe the repairs were too daunting or something? Maybe. Yeah, too lazy. Like, the, the, the people who come in here and see this as a fixer-upper are the dwarves, right, for whom it's a big deal. So, yeah. you know, they're like, oh, yeah, let us, like, spare no effort or expense to restore, Gun uh, restore Gundabad to its glory of old. But um, yeah. the Angmarim are like, nah, we're just going to build a new castle down here anyway. They didn't even steal any of the stones. Nope. They did not. They did not. Um, as far as we could, at least not the stripy ones. Well, that's they didn't go with their aesthetic. Place. That's like... That's like, uh, that's like, you know, 
walking out on a plank on your hands and knees so you could stay on the couch while getting the remote, like that kind of lazy that isn't actually lazy. <laughs> right. Right. The kind of laziness that requires more effort. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Gosh, yes. Still not standing up. Right. It is. It is just like that. Um, it is just like that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, look, uh, the uh, the beautiful dwarf designs, the snowflakes, the uh, the, you know, sort of blue inlaid stripes and everything else. Just too cheerful. Like it just it does just didn't, did not work for them. Right. Maybe there was a purity to Duran's touch that they couldn't endure. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe they, they just like, uh, remember how, um, you know, Minas Morgul is not going to be repurposed, right? It's going to be utterly destroyed. Like you don't, you don't like rebuild it. You've, they've got to cast it down, right? Maybe, maybe this is like the inverse of that from the Angmarin perspective. If this is where Doran first settled, it's a holy spot. There might be some sort of residual energy. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe there was something like that. Maybe they. this was as close as they were getting to it. Right? <laughs> Too much um, alley in here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Jordan is pointing out the scratch in the snowflake tile there um, looks the same as in the stone beside it so is the snowflake cap not a metal cap but actual stone yes I think so if we look closely at the surface of the snowflake not in the snowflake itself though partially there too but around it the texture of it does look like so I, I do think that that's colored stone not metal We do see some, like the um, this like swirly ones that kind of look like faces. Those look like metal plates, but yeah. um, those look like copper. Exactly, but this um, does look like stone. Yeah, you can see the veining in it. Exactly, exactly. Okay, all right. So, oh, great! Everybody regenerated. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, more free XP. Here you go. Um, okay. Interesting, though, that... Okay, a couple things here are interesting. Thinking about our theory about um, dwarf holy places and such, right? The creatures that we see here are all orcs, trolls, wargs, and enslaved elephants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm? Yes, some guys on my tail. <laughs> oh, I see. You're being, you're being chased pursued. around. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Pursued by a warg. Right. Exactly. Um, but anyway, we don't. See, my, my point is, we don't see any of the Angmarim themselves, right? All of the Angmarim worshippers, like all the you know, sort of more like spiritual. We saw someone. We went down the hill last week. Exactly in their castle, not up here. Is my point. Yes. Well, right. I knew the approach to the castle from here. Right. Exactly. So, um, and I, oh, I guess we have to go through the little. Uh, what did they, they raise this canopy for? 
artifact made this enclosed entrance. It looks like the Maybe tunnel that the that had to stay dry. Maybe. It kind of looks like the tunnel that the home team comes running out of on, you know, on game day. You know what I mean? Like it's... Yeah. Ooh, look at the gates. Oh, look at that. Yeah, we got that that gorgeous marble. It's so pretty. And, and rather yeah. cheekily visible for a dwarven door. Yeah, well... I well... Culturally, the whole thing about hidden doors was that an innovation over time, as might have been. They realized the world was not a nice place. The first right. I mean, this 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 place is clearly um, uh, Gundabad of old appears to have been many things. Um, inconspicuous is not one of them. So, uh, yeah, there seems to be no. Um, I agree, um, uh, Jordan. Yeah. Um, keyhole shaped is what I was thinking too um, yeah, it's like this gate is the key to the realm the key to the mountains right um, this kind of styling really does make it look like some sort of holy place yeah is that a the hole in the middle of the top portion there is that a balcony? Is that a window? I think it might be. I think it is. Doran could address those people from there really nicely. Yeah. yeah. Kind of looks like, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's a window. I don't think there's a balcony that sticks out, but yeah. It really does look like a place where you can... In which case, this is an interestingly small court here. Because, I mean... I guess theoretically, folks could be standing all the way like on the stairs. Oh no, and they still have a good angle. Yeah, they can still see uh, back in my way. Shuttered window. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you can see. He's a very naughty boy. Yeah, (laughs) you can see. You can see all the way. Yeah, you can. You can see that window perfectly well, all the way from all the way down. The angle yeah. of the stairs is like just right. Yeah, it's like stadium in reverse. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, you can still see it. And if, all the uh, way down here, it never. Up and standing, you probably get some good acoustics as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, from way down here, it'd be hard to see. But yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder if the uh, uh, if it's got acoustic uh, design as well. Um, Put it well, if you look at the the actual keyhole shape itself, I mean, it, it looks like a little bit of a megaphone shape. Oh, yeah. A little bit. Not little much, bit. but there, yeah. there might be enough to make sound. The bottom bit kind of ruins the, the bounce back, but... Well, no, that gets the, the dwarves right down here by the door. Yeah. Well, of course, we don't know if there was anything put up, like cloth or anything like that on any of these things that are now long down. But there's an interesting repeating pattern. It looks like there might be like a shutter on the back of them. And yes. the pattern, like the triangles in various shapes is like the same as on the left and the right. There's these, I don't know, yeah, the... protrusions and it's on the side. Yep. And it yep. goes up the uh, mm-hmm. up the pillar too on the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. like how they specifically got marble 
it looks like two sections of the same block of marble that were a thin veneer that mirror each other so they get this nice mirror image Clearly yeah. chopped the same block in half just like, yeah, like I said it, they probably took a one piece and used different slices yeah exactly yeah the 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 way that the 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 symmetrical lines of the marble uh frame it are really cool um yep. oh yeah sorry sorry oh there's a hobgoblin where's there a hobgoblin over here in this direction okay where is that i've got a captain oh is that him whoa they're huge oh and he's got really interesting facial hair too hey that wow. is not okay yo back off dude i'm trying to have a look at you those dudes are enormous wow and he's got tusks And wow. You need all the heels. <laughs> yeah, totally different proportions. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, wait, we're all going down right now. Ugh, there we go. Oh, one hit, man. Well, here's a fine howdy do. It's fine. <laughs> oh, I leveled up after I died. <laughs> there you go. See, look at that. Instead of dying, you leveled up. How about that? No, okay, I, well, I no, that was... On my racial. I'm talented. That was really oh, interesting. I just got a request from Durin. You got a request from Durin? Well, it's probably... Durin. Oh, oh, because you leveled up. Yeah, yeah, Not, yeah. you know... I was going to say no relation, but of course it is a relation. Uh, um, yeah, in a okay. Sense. Well, help. All right. So, one of the things that I'm finding quite curious. Okay, so hang on. So, JJ, I was expecting hobgoblins to be bigger. Just from the context in which the word is only used once in all of Tolkien's corpus that I remember. Hobgoblin. That is, and that's in the Hobbit when Gandalf, when Bilbo asks Gandalf why they can't go around Mirkwood, and he says that the area up to the north of, like, if they tried to go around Mirkwood to the north, they would get up near Gundabad, and that would, um, and that that area up there was stiff with go with uh, goblins, hobgoblins, and orcs of the worst description. It's one of the uh, two places, I think, in The Hobbit, where the word orc is used as well. And I think the okay. only place... Um, uh, there you go. Yeah, it's just the passage I was quoting. Um, and I'm, I don't think... Um, you can double-check this, but I don't remember Tolkien using the word hobgoblin anywhere else. Um, and so when he does use it there, it does sound like he's talking about different sort of varieties of orcs. Um, and... But I wouldn't have expected them to be so much larger than orcs. I mean, orcs, the great orcs of the mountains, right, are clearly presented in The Hobbit as if they are the, you know, the apex predator of the goblinoid world uh, there. Um, but, um, but I was, nevertheless, kind of expecting them to be um, uh, the hobgoblins, I mean, a little bit bigger. Oh, yeah, yeah a I mean, the hobgoblins, you think of things like, you know, Puck or that Gremlins ripoff movie. 
Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Okay, so what I'm wanting to do here, I'm trying to, I want to get a, a view outwards. If I can, without plummeting to my death. Oh, beautiful view out there. Yeah. It is. I'm trying to... This is not exactly... This doesn't look like it was designed as a walkway, as a promenade. But no. we built this, um, you know, little sticky-out business here. Um, so there seems to be some... So let's see here if we can, looking out from here... Let's first imagine what Durin would have seen. He would not have seen Angmarim Fortress over there. No. Okay, wouldn't have seen the Angmarim Fortress. Lots of wells untasted. Right. Lots of untasted wells, you think? Yeah, well, lots of water sources at the very least. Right. Yeah, you, so you think that this uh, this lake here was a uh, was at one point a yet untasted well, perhaps? Possible. These all look like glacier kind of rivers. It does. Yeah, it yeah. looks like glacial runoff. You're right. Um, yeah, this does look like Mirror Mirror 1.0, Hrothgar. I agree. You yeah, can see why. Yeah, why he was attracted to the Mirror Mirror. It does look a lot like that. Exactly. It was kind of like home and yet uh, an upgrade. Um Okay, so, all right, I have a couple questions. This is inspiring a couple questions here. Question one, the dwarf ruins, which from here are so clear to be seen, right? Um, here's my... The one that's highest, the high point, straight across from us, right, is part of that original block way out near the cliffs that we were looking at before and visiting before. The place that looked like the, um, uh, you know, the welcome spot, right? Yeah, the visitor center. The visitor center. Um, yeah. It also is from here... The sight line is so clear from here to those fortresses down there. It might possibly help to explain um, why those buildings are built up above ground. Um, that Because, uh, I mean, it'd be really easy communication. I'm not thinking beacons, but, I mean... I mean, it would work with beacons. Yeah, no, but, but you could like flash lights. There are all kinds of ways that you could communicate with this kind of a direct sight line. Um, oh, yeah. So I wonder, you know, if they, uh, um, if that's one of the reasons that because you're looking out and you see those. Now I wonder when exactly those were built. Um, Was it a blackstone? Yeah, I'm wondering when those were built. Um, now, Bart, I agree. It do, it is interesting that nothing is built on that island mountain in the middle of the lake. It almost suggests that perhaps there's a, you know, it's a, 
an untouchable spot. I mean, it doesn't look particularly convenient for one thing, but um, but yeah, if it's some kind of holy island, it, like Tall Brandir, of which it so, somewhat reminds me, right? Um, or, or it could be new. It could have been like a chunk of the mountain that fell off for some reason. It's possible. An asteroid that, uh, that came down later. It's possible. Um, uh, We'd have to get a good look at it. Kind of want to see what's on there now. Right, right. Um, we're, we're guessing first. Jadia is wondering, is that a Carrick? Um, well, we know that um, Bjorn calls things like that Carricks. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think Bjorn would call it a Carrick. Presumably. I mean, it's in a lake, not a river, but... Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. So... Hmm. There's a bat cave quest on the island? A bat uh, well, cave? That would seem to... So the bat cave is there? Yeah. Wow. Holy Maybe it is a holy there. island. Oh, it's not it's it's not the cool kind of bat cave. I see. Okay. The bat who's hanging from the who's offering the quest back into that cuckoo. I haven't done oh, the quest that yet bat. Oh, that bat. That bat? That's what I'm asking cuz I haven't done the quest oh, yet. Is if it's like oh. an emissary of the bats of the the native bats of that island? It, it yes, Holdro says that bat. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um Back. Well, I guess if the bat actually gives the quest, then um it's not a dwarf giving the quest, and so therefore, I was wondering if if dwarves were giving like some lameo quest, like drive out the bats from the island or whatever. Okay, they all right. They were pressing problems. Yeah. Here, like those big old bloody hobgoblins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it involves rescuing baby bats. Okay, that's adorable. Um, okay. That's, I approve. I approve of this quest. Okay. All right. So have we solved anything yet, but we saw hobgoblins and that was good. Um, one of the things I'm trying to figure. Okay. Tune in next time when we ask the question, can we see stages in development of Gundabad itself? And how does that impact our assessment of how much has been rebuilt by the modern dwarves? And what do we think this might possibly tell us about when the Angmarim showed up? Yeah. Um, same bat time, same bat channel. Exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> I had to. I had to. <laughs> exactly. So, next week. Tales and Gen Xers explain this one to Gen Z. Sorry. There we go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay, so um, I think we're, we're, we still have a little bit more data to gather. Can we get in through the gate, by the way? We never, I never tried it. Can, can you get inside, no. or is that that's okay. only just for the extension we can get inside? Okay. I saw the announcement of the, uh, the extension, but... Uh, um, the expansion, good times. Okay. We'll talk right. about it after the show. Cool. Oh, yeah. Awesome. All right, so... Um, very good. So, yes, relative dating of different parts of Gundabad uh, compared with those dwarf ruins 
and then also the Angmarim and the Orcs and all that kind of thing. So we'll see if we can sort those things out and come up with a with a timeline after a little bit more exploration next time. And then maybe we will attempt to move on to... Because if we can't get in, then I think the next thing, unless we want to go over and explore this wing, which I think we probably do, then we'll be headed up towards uh, Wormsgraf, right? Next time? Or, you know, eventually? <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Excellent. All right. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And I will see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.